Hello, and welcome to the Hypermobility Happy Hour, the first podcast completely dedicated to discussing hypermobility conditions, including hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. My name is Carrie Gabrielson, and today I'm very excited to be speaking with Esther Gauclay, founder of the Gauclay Method, or Primal Posture, a postural awareness technique which has a large following and was first popularized at the beginning of the 2010s decade with professionals in Silicon Valley, California. Esther is known as the posture guru of Silicon Valley, and her method has been taught internationally. She published a book called Eight Steps to a Pain-Free Back, Natural Posture Solutions for Pain in the Back, Neck, Shoulder, Hip, Knee, and Foot. And she also created a DVD called Primal Posture, the back pain solution that explains her posture method. The Gokhale method has been reported upon in the New York Times by NPR and many, many other publications worldwide. Esther also has a fantastic TEDx Stanford talk, which you can find on YouTube. We'll put links to her website and various publications in the description for this episode. Esther, hello. Hi, Carrie. So glad to be with you. And I like that this is called Happy Hour because I think that's a good place to be. Absolutely. Yeah, we like to focus on the positives of what we can do. We feel like the world is so full of what we can't do and, and negative um, information. And so we're trying to do our little part to, to focus on um, really practical things we can do, which is exactly um, your focus. So let's, let's start at the top. First, could you tell our listeners a little bit about how you personally became interested in improving your own posture? Yeah, I came to this the hard way as people come to their passions very often. I had an extremely severe back problem, an L5 S1 disc herniation, severe disc herniation that made for an ice pick in the butt feeling, sciatic pain radiating down my leg all the way to my toes. It started in the ninth month of pregnancy with my first child. And I was told maybe the baby's sitting on a nerve, but it just got worse and worse. And even after the baby was born, it got worse and worse. And I couldn't pick up my baby at some point. I could no longer carry a cooking pot without feeling twinges of sciatic pain down my leg. And then I couldn't, I stopped being able to sleep for more than two hours at a stretch. I wasn't taking pain meds because I was nursing my baby. So it affected every aspect of my being. My mother-in-law had to come and bail us out and she was a darling, but it's not a long-term solution. And I was just frantically trying different things, you know, all the alternative things, the complement, the conservative things, physical therapy, massage, chiropractic, acupuncture, stretching, strengthening, checking my head, you name it, I tried it. And I was not getting relief. I was getting worse and worse, and I was desperate. And eventually, I had surgery. L5-S1 laminectomy, discectomy gave me some relief. But then a year later, the same disc re-herniated, and they wanted to do another surgery. And I'd already been told, don't have any more kids. You have a weak back. You have bulging discs. This is not, and they didn't have to tell me because I was feeling twinges even after, you know, though I was better, I knew something wasn't right in there and I didn't want to risk the kind of horrors I had lived through um, with that first herniation. And then here I was with the second one and they wanted to go in and do a second surgery. And as far as I was concerned, surgery had failed as well. And I was casting a wider and wider and wider net 
And the things that appealed to me, the things that resonated with me, were things about how you fix yourself, things in a systematic error in the way you use your body. So posture, so Alexander technique, Feldenkrais, most of all, aplomb, a French technique that made sense to me and resonated with my experience from my childhood. Because when I was a child, I, I grew up in India, and my father being Indian, my mother being Dutch, and they would traipse says four kids all around India to tribal areas, to villages. And it was very um, clear that people who live close to the ground have some kind of wisdom that seems to have gotten lost in modern Western society. That came through loud and clear. And my mom was very in tune with that, being a registered nurse in Holland. And so she was always hunting around for old wisdom, uh, natural wisdom, and she, all of us were packed off to yoga camp, and we studied, um, you know, uh, Sanskrit and Hindi and Marathi, the vernacular languages, Bharatanatyam instead of ballet. She was very enamored of old wisdom and Indian culture, traditional Indian culture, and we were steeped in it. And she would also point people out, like the fruit seller. She would say things like, wow, look how they carry things. And the, our sweeper in home, she was like so, so admiring of her. And so something registered in my brain. And so when I had my own problem, then what I was drawn to was techniques which pointed to this kind of wisdom that some people have. And modern Westerners have very much lost. And so, anyway, long story short, by studying these methods, and I got rid of my back problems entirely, bit by bit. And then I was able to have two more children, no problem, no twinge. It's been over 25, 30 years now that I've not had a twinge, not had a ache, not had, certainly not had a pain in my back. And so now I have the like amazing pleasure and privilege of sharing this with people. And I can't tell you how, how, how amazing that is to have something that valuable to be able to pass on. And it's really mostly a pointing to what's already in them. Like, you know, F, it's not a, it's not that we are, it's not a design problem in Homo sapiens. It's a usage problem. It's that we arrive on the planet without a user's manual. And then we make it up and we have all these poor influences on us, like fashion and poorly designed furniture and really counterproductive directions in posture it's kind of amazing how wrong we've got it in posture even worse than in diet and so now we're not doing so well so that's the long story of how I got into this wow yeah what an incredible life story and I'm so sorry to hear about that period of suffering you went through but it's amazing how you persevered through that and it's really inspiring how you used your experience to be able to, you know, not only so radically improve your own life, but to find, you know, such incredible purpose in, in helping others to, totally. to address this, this problem, which is so, 
you know, endemic in our society. And, and like you say, that really, that resonates with me about how we don't get a user manual and yet we're kind of just, you know, plopped into this society that, um, you know, has a lot of things that are designed really with an eye towards visual aesthetics, you know, like furniture and, uh, in fashion, but, you know, very little is really designed with, with a functional, um, I towards, you know, what is going to make someone have, you know, be able to sit in an optimal way or, or function in their job or just in everyday life in a way without so much pain and suffering. So it's so great to hear that, you know, someone has invested so much time and energy kind of thinking about putting together that that user manual. But I also like how it's it's not really a directive or, or a lecture. It's It's really getting people to identify you know, those postural cues and those sensations that are kind of inherently already within us, just waiting to be kind of tapped into. Yeah, you know, when something really challenging like that happens to you, you're at a juncture and you have two ways to go. You can succumb and be kind of a victim and just suffer, or you find a solution, you're forced and, you know, necessity is often the mother of invention, right? And I'm not saying that I invented all of this by no means. You know, I used a lot of existing knowledge and existing research, and but then crafted it into a pathway that's actually effective and efficient. But yeah, more recently, you know, with COVID and sheltering, we've had another wave of that because we were primarily a hands-on offering And with 50 teachers around the world, trained personally by me to offer people a very high level of service. And I was very convinced that it needed to be hands-on. And I had resisted all kinds of pressures to do a a kind of one-on-many course online. And we've always done things online for the past. So we were well-practiced, actually, to go online because I've always done online workshops that are free of charge for more than 15 years I've done that and uh, we've done one-on-one things online but we didn't really pay attention to that was kind of a very if nothing else like if you really can't fly in and so on then we have this but it was very subdued and under we really believe that people had to show up and experience a teacher's hands-on and recently I've been shocked shocked at how well one-on-one online works. I am just dumbfounded, actually. I was not expecting, had resisted this direction, and we made it work. And again, I, I bring this up in, as an example of how necessity is sometimes the mother of invention. We made it work by chopping it up into bite-sized pieces, because there had always been the problem with our teaching, that it's huge there's so much information like we make people drink out of a fire hose i'm ashamed to say but also (laughs) proud to say you know like we don't want any of this to not be passed on we're not holding things back and so we've tried to make it lighter by interweaving email messages between the lessons and also it's very picture heavy and it's hands-on heavy, you know, like we're putting our hands on people and so on. So it's always been that, but there's still a lot of information and it's hard for people to digest and retain that and translate it into behavior change. So then we try to woo them into all kinds of subsequent 
learning, but not all. We're not very good business people, so we haven't been as successful at getting people to do their continuing education. And now with this COVID thing, we've been doing 13-minute lessons, not six of them like in the in-person or one day like in the in-person. Those are our two variants of teaching in-person, but 18 lessons, each 13 minutes long, and those are packing a punch. They are taken daily or every other day or on occasion, someone very busy takes like once every, twice a week. That's the outer limit of what we recommend. But because there's only one thing covered in each of those lessons, it is a deep dive into that one thing. And it's back and forth and back and forth. It's coaching, you know, because there are two camera angles on the teacher. There are two camera angles that we recommend on the student, you know, an iPhone and a computer so we can see side view, we can see front view, and we can ask the student to turn around and if we need to see something, it is working incredibly well. And the other thing that I hadn't thought of, I, I can't claim credit for having thought of this, it just it fell out of the situation is that people are in there in the comfort of their own homes, no commute, none of that I anticipated, but they're also on their couch. They're on their bed with their pillows, which we can't replicate in when they come in to see us in person. So that has also been actually a surprisingly strong benefit. So we're, we're astonished and we are really hitting it out of the park with our newly crafted Gokley Elements course. Anyway, I go too long. Over to you, Carrie. <laughs> That's fantastic. No, thanks for that. I, I, I did want to ask about how you've been adapting to the COVID situation because obviously it prevents or presents such uh, unique challenges for, for many businesses, but it's so encouraging to hear, you know, the ways in which, you know, you've, you've found ways to not only just adapt or kind of muddle through, but it sounds like, you know, some of these are, you know, really great insights that can really help people. Like I wouldn't have thought of that either. The fact that, you know, being on your own couch, you know, that's, you know, not only does that, maybe become really useful for some people because they're adapting it to their real everyday life. But I assume there's also a, a bit of a comfort mentality. Yeah. too. You know, We all kind of like our own little cocoon. And so it's, it's easier maybe to adapt to these, these shifts, which, which can be uncomfortable or can be, you know, we, we spend a lifetime kind of learning our unhealthy posture methods. And I assume there's probably a spectrum, but for, for some people, you know, myself definitely included, it can be really hard to even change one small thing about your posture because then that throws off some other thing. And so it's, yeah, it's just really encouraging to hear the ways in which you're not only just surviving COVID, but sounds like really thriving under this. Yeah. I mean, you know, and people don't have to commute in. A lot of our, our people are hurting, right? So driving the car in, I mean, mm -hmm. we show them how to make that extremely comfortable and actually pleasurable and therapeutic even, believe it or not. But when they first come in or fly in from Norway or wherever, you know, it used to be that we didn't have teachers covering the globe and people were flying long distances and traveling long distances and they, nobody ever complained. They were so happy to get the learning, but it's a compromise, right? To the system to have to put up with all the travel and this and that and the cost. And so here, you know, they don't have to travel anywhere. They just show up online and they're in there, like you say, the comfort of their own home and they're learning on much more relevant 
props for their lives. So it's a threefer, you know, like it was not expected to work out that well. And, you know, it's a little awkward for our company because not all of our teachers were trained to teach online. Not all of them are have good internet, you know, so we have a subset of our teachers that want to teach online that have the technological inclination and and equipment and so on. But we've got enough teachers doing this that we have good coverage, actually. And these teachers are all experienced and with hands-on. They are outstanding. And so they're all actually reporting, like me, surprise and even shock at how well it's going. And as far as it's particularly fun because we get to lavish attention on this one thing instead of, you know, having to feeling pressure to move through a curriculum pretty rapidly. So we're luxuriating in it, feeling like it's a awesome gift, you know, and the students are feeling the same way because they have just one thing on their mind. We tell them, we advise them to put on a a smartphone and make it go off every 20 minutes and then for one minute and people can choose their own frequency you know whatever suits their lives but that's a kind of stick in the mud like or you know like a suggestion one minute every 20 minutes they're going to pay attention to the one thing and guess what by the next day or two days later they're pretty good at that one thing and they're ready to concatenate the next thing and then this the previous thing kind of comes along in the background like a caboose. So we keep having more wagons in the train and pretty soon it's a train of really powerful techniques and they, no one can deny that they're feeling better, looking better, sleeping better, breathing better and not hurting. It's awesome. Wonderful. Yeah, that's the ultimate win, 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 win. It sounds like <laughs> multiple dimensions. And, and not only just that, but no side effects, you know, no downtime. No, no, no. I'm going to change that. I'm going to say there is side effects. They're all positive. <laughs> <laughs> no negative side effects. Yeah, no, no unwanted side effects. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, it just, you know, your attitude and your kind of joy with which you approach your work just really comes through in, you know, the excitement and, and your, your tone and, and pacing and all of that. And so, yeah, it's just, it's really inspiring to hear, you know, not only this effective kind of, you know, risk-free method of improving your life potentially very radically, but, you know, that it can be done, you know, from the, the comfort of your own own home and on your own terms and in a way that fits in with even a really busy lifestyle. So kudos to you for sticking at it and developing. Well, kudos, kudos to you for being so sensitive and amplifying what I think is a real situation. There is a lot of joy. I cannot describe how how gratified I'm feeling recently that we managed to survive and even thrive. And there are a lot of ions in the fire that are very promising right now. There's a very major national magazine that is considering an article. There is a researcher at a top U.S. medical institution who happens to be the president of a top highly relevant association of 9,000 physicians who wants to be the principal investigator. In fact, just today, we closed the design of the study. It's going to be a randomized controlled trial. 
I will have to raise $350,000. That's no tiny feat, but considering this is a possible solution, and in my view, <laughs> a, a, a solution, not just possible, but I'm, I'm obviously highly biased. That's why you have to do randomized controlled trials. But based on anecdotal evidence, based on third-party crowdsourcing data, it looks like an outlier in terms of its success rate. And so we have been jumping up and down to have the gold standard, the randomized controlled trial done. And now we have the, I cannot imagine a better researcher to run it. I can't divulge the name quite yet because he wants to make sure the funding is in and the IRB is in. And so a little bit of chicken and egg there because being able to talk about it more freely might help the funding, but hey, we can manage with that small handicap because there are enough people in our inner circle who are of means and will donate. So I'm pretty confident we'll be able to put it together. And then that's a huge missing piece in the puzzle. And so I am extremely excited right now. That's incredible news. I'm so glad to hear that. And that, that actually is a topic I wanted to ask you about because you know, one of the challenges in kind of getting the, the the Western medical system or, you know, getting coverage, you know, for people that, you know, may not be able to afford access to programs like yours is getting that kind of research. Because even though there's a wealth of, you know, anecdotal evidence and really beyond that, just, you know, tons of people saying that their lives have been dramatically altered. And, you know, and again, given the the risk benefit profile here and, and sort of other dynamics, it's it's kind of a shame that there's a lot of people out there who could really, you know, maybe almost everyone could really benefit from your programs. And, you know, I'm even thinking getting kids, you know, in school or getting people right. at a younger age. So maybe it's easier to kind of, you know, it, you're not having to undo so much if you start kind of earlier in the, the posture process. And so that's incredible to hear that that kind of, you know, those institutions are starting to take notice and that um, researchers are on board. So awesome. it's very interesting to see which bastions are the hardest to, what's the word, to traverse, to yeah. to breach, breach, breach a bastion. And schools and kids are the hardest. I cannot tell you how hard we have tried. Free mm. services. We'll come into your school. We'll do a PTA meeting. We'll come and talk to the teachers. We'll, I've, given, I've donated uh, 1,500 copies of my book for $1 a book to teachers thinking, okay, let's see if there's trickle-down effect. Answer, no, there is not trickle-down effect, as far as I can tell. And, and on and on. We try so hard. It is so hard because kids are overscheduled. Kids, people, they don't yet have the kind of level of pain. They have pain, by the way, but they don't have the level of pain that makes parents want to stop and take notice. Like they don't have. So, and, and so it's real. That's been one of the hardest. And, you know, like people who don't have means to pay for, even though we are the least expensive intervention for that there is practically for back pain, you know, some people can't afford even the least expensive intervention. You know, they need insurance coverage, especially now. And so then you need insurance to cover. And that is really hard. And it, what's ironic about it is the insurance companies stand to benefit the most. 
And they, I, when people take our courses, they say, oh, these insurance companies should be knocking down your door, you know, yeah. and I agree. But those are large animals. And the one part of the animal doesn't talk to the other part of the animal. You know, the ones who are agreeing on what's covered and what's not covered are not talking to the strategists who decide, you know, what what things are actually cost effective and effective at all. And so it's very hard to breach that bastion. And what ironically has been very easy for us to breach are, are the physicians. The physicians are so on board. They know the lay of the land. They're not looking for some mysterious magic bullet, ozone, whatever, you know, that they're going to take that's going to magically make everything disappear. You know, they are, they know the lay of the land and they really resonate with the logic of the Gokhale method, with the fact that it's down to earth, no airy fairy waving your hands around. All the arguments are based on data. Now, it might be, it's not all randomized controlled trials. We don't have those, but very logical, anthropological data, historical observation, all kinds of studies on shape of spine and how that correlates with back pain, is intriguing studies on the pristine nature of the Beale tribal's discs at age 50, indistinguishable from the 20-year-old disc. And so what I'm saying is if they can do it, we can do it. They're not genetically distinct from us. There's very little variation across the human race when it comes to disc robustness and shape of spine and such. It's because they're using their bodies differently, and we can learn how. And so... Anyway, so there's all, so the physicians love all of this. And we've been invited in to like Sutter Health has me come and teach the physicians at their wellness weekends. Kaiser has hired us to train their physicians. I teach my all day course, two, two teachers, 20 students, max, all physicians, and their spouses got invited as well, actually, at the last thing, which I'm very happy about, because I do believe posture is a cultural matter, a community yeah. matter. And if the people around you are in the know, then you're much more likely to hang on to it, to learn it better, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, so all these physicians, they love it. It makes sense. And they feel that they suffer like everybody else, you know, especially the surgeons, the dentists, the people who have to bend over and do interventions, they suffer because we don't know how to bend in modern times. You know, we're all told to bend with your knees. Well, try doing surgery like that. And then beyond that, we have no directions. So people are band- bending randomly. Surgeons themselves, if you go to an OR like I have, you see that a very large percentage of the surgeons have scars in the back of their necks from their own surgery. It's so tragic and ironic. It's so sad because these people have gone to school forever. You know, my own daughter is a oncology fellow at Stanford now. I see what's happening. They live with us um, because <laughs> shelter in and they have a child and they wanted grandparental input. Good for her. Good for yeah. us. But so I've seen firsthand, like, or secondhand, what it's like for physicians. And, you know, they do all this hard, hard work, and then they break down themselves because there is no training whatsoever on on the physicality of doing their job. So anyway, so all the physicians love us. We come in, we help them, they feel effects, end of story, you know. But when it comes to referring 
patients, when it comes to bringing us into their institutions, what's missing is the randomized controlled trial data. So mm -hmm. I'm there for exactly. a while, and I'm very, very much looking forward to breaching that bastion as you <laughs> Absolutely. That is just fascinating. And it's interesting me, you know, coming at, you know, the perspective of having a law background, you know, from what you're saying, I'm immediately thinking of the different types of evidence, you know, there, there is circumstantial evidence, you know, not everything has to be the, the quote unquote smoking gun, you know, which may be the, the IRB type study. And so, you know, it sounds like, you know, all the kind of other types of evidence really have been gathered, you know, in support of what you're doing. And so it's so great. Um, to finally be working on kind of that that last piece. And you're absolutely right that the insurers, you know, probably have one of the biggest stakes in in this whole process and, and stand to have the most to gain. And I also think of employers or, you know, even the federal government, like occupational safety and all that. You know, if we start kind of investing in people um, at a younger age to to work on these, you know, relatively you know, simple or straightforward techniques to pr protect their spine and, you know, the most important parts of their body, you know, there can be huge financial benefits from that. And, you know, that might be the way to sell to big companies, but obviously there's also huge external or, you know, kind of secondary benefits, improve quality of life. You know, if you're not suffering in pain, you can be there for your children and you can enjoy your hobbies and stay more active for longer. So it oh. seems like kind of a huge cascade of benefits in what you're yeah. doing. And it so really cool to talk to you with your lawyer background. No interviewer has ever come up with this observation that there are different kinds of evidence. I love that. The last time someone said that it was Dan Churkin, who is one of the world's foremost low back pain researchers now retired. And he has been advising me pro bono and when he started, he said, you know, every week, some people call me up to ask for advice and research on this or that method or that. And I always say no, but there's something about what you're telling me that makes me want to support you. And he has been a champ, like a marvelous supporter for decades, though we haven't managed to break through to a randomized control trial. He's been in the background advising us pro bono. And one of the reasons he said is because you know what, your approach is refreshingly data driven and evidence based. Even though it's not the usual kind of evidence, it's not a randomized control trial but it is evidence-based and data-driven. And I love that, that he recognized that because you know all of our arguments, pretty compelling and based on data. And it goes this way and that way. And he even considers the fact that we've been so well covered, like in the New York Times, and we were the second most popular NPR story for all of 2015. And he even looks to that as a certain kind of evidence. You know, people are not stupid. And if they respond to something, it's usually because there's something there. I mean, people can be fooled, but you know, so anyway, so it's interesting, different kinds of evidence. Maybe sometime we'll talk about that offline. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it, it's unfortunate that the system is so geared to, you know, be focused on the randomized clinical trials. I mean, there are reasons for that and everything, yeah. but it creates this really myopic view and, and it, you know, makes for 
for work like yours to kind of, you know, either, you know, fall through the cracks or maybe not get the kind of attention it deserves. And I found it really interesting, you know, to go back to something you said a moment earlier ago, earlier um, about how hard it is to get get into schools and to get this in front of children. And that that seems really discouraging because, you know, I, I understand, you know, obviously you want to make sure whatever kids are being exposed to is, you know, is based in data and facts. But but your method very much is and has been, you know, developed and tweaked very dynamically over time. Yeah. Um, and But, you know, I also immediately thought of the fact that, you know, so many kids these days are being treated with really, really, you know, heavy medications with tons of, you know, terrible side effects. And a lot of doctors, you know, almost don't have a second thought about doing something like that. But, you know, if you look at it in a greater context, you know, a lot of those kids that, you know, yes, you know, there certainly is pain for for kids, but their symptoms may, you know, and, and their sort of consequences yeah. of poor posture may look more like agitation or, you know, or anxiety right. or other things that, you know, we, we end up treating with this big hammer of prescription drugs and kind of overlooking the more, you know, quote unquote, yeah. simpler, straightforward solutions because yeah. they take more time. But in the end, you know, the, the trade-off over a lifetime of, you know, cost benefit, you know, it seems yeah. like the method like yours is just, especially to try first, you know. Yes, with, with yes. I mean, I think it's important to recognize that the the risks associated with the Gokhale method and posture improvement in generally are relatively low compared to oh, surgery or, you know, a heavier duty intervention. That's important. And then also, I think there is a double standard. You know, it's like all these surgeries that are performed have been shown to not be a good first course of action. It doesn't stop it happening in way more often than is needed, desirable, or ethical even. You know, the financial incentives are set up in our society in a really unfortunate way to encourage mm-hmm. those things to happen too often. And so, you know, I, I get... When I get, you know, asked about, well, your thing hasn't been proven or it hasn't, yeah, there are a ton of things happening that have been proven to be not effective um, yes. the majority of the time. How about we take that into consideration a little more? Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's a really great point. And, you know, hopefully with kind of this increased awareness and a lot of people looking for, you know, alternative solutions to the the endless kind of string of surgeries, you know, you know, hopefully the the kind of the community out there that's benefiting from this and and your instructors and and you and this kind of network is, is moving that ball forward. And it's it you're up against a huge system that's very, very much ingrained and, you know, has its own you know, very rigid financial structure. And so very, very commendable yeah. to be taking yeah. that on. You know, water finds its own level. That's one thing that I find comforting. And secondly, our approach has a lot of sticky, attractive elements. It's visual. It's ontological. You know, we're taking people back to their childhood. We're telling them to look at their own ancestors. We're taking them to foreign lands where people are so obviously beautifully structured. And, you know, you look at these women carrying all these pots on their head. A picture really is worth a thousand words. Everybody can see something right is happening there. And so I have faith that even though, yes, the statistics are just 
discouraging in that even after a new measure is proven, it takes doctors 20 years to change their ways of prescribing. I don't buy, I don't think it's going to be like that for us. I think once the ball gets rolling, it's going to go rapidly down the hill. It's going to rush. It's going to be difficult for us to keep up with demand. And so I'm already anticipating like, you know, what, how can we scale certain things and how can we anticipate what I think is going to happen? That's fantastic. And I think it's so smart to get physicians on board. Those are the easy ones, as I <laughs> ironically, because people sort of assume like, oh, you must meet with all kinds of resistance from physicians. No, no, no. Physicians are wonderful. They have their head in the right place. They have their hearts in the right place. I love the physicians. You know, they're, they're, uh, they just have a missing piece in their picture, you know, and they're happy that I'm providing it. And so, no, no, those are not the hard ones. The hard ones are like some, like people who have, this is what's hard. Like this is a soup that people have spat in. They've, you know, people have been promised the moon so many times, you know, do this intervention, 10 sessions, and you will see miraculous results and nothing happened. And now do that. And it's like nothing happened. And now Esther's coming along the number 10 person in this long train of promising things that nothing have. And I'm not promising anything. There's never a guarantee. I'm very clear on that. However, I do say strong things like, you know, if this were my family member, it would be a no brainer. I would send them to do this course or, mm-hmm. you know, people like you, depending on who shows up, I might say people have come in with similar things and done amazingly well. And all of that is accurate, true, and actually demonstrable on, it's not a randomized controlled trial, but there's a, there's a crowdsourcing website called healthoutcome.org. So singular, healthoutcome, not with an S, .org, not .com. And they hide their data a bit, but if you hang around the front page, the the main page for, I think, five, 10 seconds, then this data block shows up and you can click on it. And then you see 47 interventions that people have voted or have have given data on. Yeah, it's like, I tried this, 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 and this is how well it worked. This cured me or almost cured, improved, not improved, worsened. So people check the different things they've tried and what sort of results they got from it. And we are like, far and away the number one outlier like huge margin we're like the diff the, the chances of cure or almost cure like 50 times the runner-up it's crazy yeah. yeah it's like completely out of the ballpark of everything else um not very known yet because they they were below the fold it's under 600 reviews but it's still 387 or something i looked today and that's plenty enough to be statistically significant. It start, it becomes stable around 80 reviews and there's statistical principles to explain why that's the case. So we've been hovering around 4.3 to 4.4 um, rating out of five since the, for the last two years. And the number two one is I think posture, posture in general, and that's 3.2. So huge, huge, huge difference, but you can take a look at it. So we've known for a long time that we're, there's something unusual going on here. 
something better than the little tiny bit of improvement that you see with a few other interventions. And most interventions leave you more often not improved or worsened than improved, almost cured or cured. In fact, there are only five interventions out of 47 that have more people in that group that improves, gets cured or almost cured rather than not improved or worsened. It's such a sad, sad statistic. You know, we're talking about the number one reason for global disability, and that's the best we have. You know, that's when nothing works. It's Absolutely. Hard. But that speaks to, again, this, what, a, what a great form of other evidence, you know, and asking people's own experience. Yeah. And that really speaks to, you know, again, the effectiveness of your method and the fact that it's been, you know, honed and tweaked over time and yeah. looked at through different lenses. That's one of the things that I find so attractive about it. You know, you have the images, you have the, you know, yeah. speaking, you have text, you have different ways of sort of delivering the, the message and the information because we all learn a little bit differently. And so, you know, that's why that one-on-one teaching is so, so helpful. But even that is kind of, you know, the person is able to kind of not quite pick and choose, but able to have an experience that speaks to them and the way they learn and adapt. So that's fantastic. Yeah, no, thank you for recognizing that, Carrie. Keep talking. I like talking <laughs> to you. You're so sensitive. You're a good interviewer. Your oh, lawyer's you. background is helping. Um, but yeah, you know, it's, we've layered all these and to our credit and our discredit, we've put all of our resources into making this better. We did not, it's all last month, two months ago, for the first time we hired a marketing person. (laughs) My daughter came on board to help in the company and said, it's ridiculous. We have no one in marketing. How can we, it's great that we came as far as we've come, but you know, any serious company needs to have someone in marketing. So we hired someone and he's fantastic. He, we hired him just in time for COVID. <laughs> so it's like, okay, now we have a fleshed out team of 10 full-time people and our main intervention just evaporated. Hmm, we need to do something. So that was, but yeah, so we've put things into, like we have these sensors, you know, it's state of the art. Five sensors, they go on your back. And they speak to an eye device and they show a real-time view of the shape of your spine. So you're moving around and you can see exactly what's happening back there on your spine, right? And then a teacher can mark a target, can say, this is a really good way to stand for you. And then you can practice the kinesthetic moves that it takes to match up with that target. So it helps people learn. They get to practice again and again. They also, we record all of this data so that they can see how they're changing across time. The next time someone comes in, we can see if they have been doing all the things we recommend and sitting well and standing well and so on, then they're going to see some progress over time towards a J spine over an S spine, for example. That's one of our main major, major teachings, and I can expand on that later. But, you know, and then that recorded data also serves to drive research, which is, by the way, how we landed this top researcher. He came to us, he was interested for two reasons. One is our results, 
And the second is that we have these wearables, which not only allow you to collect objective data and show changes in real time, but also across time. We've published papers showing that something real is happening, and that is lacking in most back pain research. People just, okay, I feel better, I don't feel better, and that's that. We have no idea what's happening. With us, we know exactly what's happening. We see the change in the shape of their spine. We also have a paper or we have uh, research on one sensor's data. It's on your chest or somewhere. And from the one on your chest with one stride, if you measure one stride's worth of data of a person, you can tell with 85% accuracy if that person took the Gokhale Method Foundations course or not. Wow. Talk about objective something happening. <laughs> yes, and talk about, yeah, objective evidence. I mean, that's, yeah. uh, you know, I, I don't know what the statistics are for other things, but that that sounds extremely high. You know, I know what it takes to kind of get approved in terms of a benefit can often be really marginal, especially in kind of the pharmaceutical world. So that's, I mean, those are phenomenal results. And it's so we're cool pretty, that pretty well hitting it out of the park, you know, yeah. subjective and, and the objective departments. And, you know, in our company, we like to do everything well. It's very textured. So it's, you know, the way we do research, the intervention, the, the visuals, like everything has to meet a standard of excellence. That's where we invest. And, you know, who we bring on board, how we train them, the fact that our teachers... You know, our structure encourages all of our teachers to cooperate. They're not in competition with each other. No. So they are daily on a teacher water cooler. My student, this and this and this. You know, I pipe in, the other teachers pipe in. Our teachers are varied. Some are physicians, some are PTs, OTs, massage therapists, dance teachers, yoga teachers, you name it, we have it. Acupuncturists. Massage, we have a lot of massage people, you know, really skilled with their hands. They have the background even before they came to the Gokhale Methods. They have a lot of pieces in place. And now they're cross-pollinating and informing each other around specific students who are kept anonymous, of course. And, you know, then we discuss and learn off those students. We also meet every year to hone our hands-on skills, you know, for the days when that will be relevant again. And it's starting to open up in some areas, but not others, you know. So we just follow the law and are wise, you know, wise and uh, trust that the experts know what they're doing and go by their recommendations. But in the meantime, we found this exemplary way to work online as well. And that's a subset of the teachers that are doing that. Yeah, wow. I, I love that focus on collaboration. And like you say, cross-pollination, that's such a great kind of visual because, you know, so many fields are, you know, coming from the law world, I can tell you it, there's so much competition. And I always saw that as, you know, there's some ways in which, you know, friendly competition, you know, maybe motivates people, but yeah. that, that doesn't speak to me as much. I, yeah. I always felt better on a team because, you know, with any topic of any complexity, you know, law, human body, whatever we're dealing with, yeah. you know, we all can't live enough lifetimes to get the perspectives that we need right. to truly, right. you know, get get to what matters and get to the heart of something really important. And so it's sure. awesome that you're fostering this kind of totally. collaborative community. I think we should talk about your audience because your audience has very particular interests. And I can't wait to 
help give them something useful. Yes. And in fact, I, I was just thinking of um, something you said a few moments back about, you know, how part of the problem in getting people to 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 access your method is the fact that there's been so much spitting in the soup. I, I like that kind of metaphor for this because, uh, you know, one of the kind of targeted questions I wanted to ask for you for people about hypermobility conditions is that, you know, a lot of these people have struggled with pain and posture their whole life. You know, many of them have tried different movement practices, you know, either with limited success or, you know, a lot of them, a lot of us will will try something and then two days later, we're having horrible muscle spasms. And, you know, that those kind of past experiences will, will give us kind of a, you know, it makes us less open-minded towards trying something new. And we're, there's a lot of guarding and a lot of, you know, rightful protection because we've been burned and we've been in a lot of pain and been really discouraged. And so what would you say to a patient out there who's maybe, you know, tried some different things, it, it hasn't worked, maybe they're getting getting worse and they're kind of discouraged, okay. at least leery about starting something. Totally, new. totally. I mean, this is one of the big challenges we face, like I was mentioning. People, uh, you know, the, the roller coaster of hope and dashed hope is exhausting. And so, you know, to invest in hope again and risk another downturn crash is very, I, I think people need to be a little measured. Like, don't just go for everything. But at the same time, you don't want to close hope, you close yourself to hope altogether, because just because 100 things fail doesn't mean the next thing isn't going to succeed. Important to remember. So using one's discernment is important. And I think there, having a good intellectual filter is very helpful. You trust your mind. You know, hopefully you have learned it some, you know, you have done your three hours and you've gone to school and, you know, the good side of school is it does train your mind and how to think and how to assess and how to detect fraudulent things. And, you know, so don't just go for bullets or things that don't make sense and so on. So that's first. Number two, I want to say something about pain because there are a lot of techniques that go, oh, yeah, it's pain. Now you have to go, to, you know, work through pain, no pain, no gain. That to me makes no sense. There are cases like where you understand, okay, I work this muscle, it's tired, it's sore. I understand that could be a transition. So if you intellectually fully understand why something might be a little sore, then okay, you might want to put up with a little bit of that. But my view of pain is that nature took millions of years to evolve this mechanism to give you feedback. The feedback is, hey, cool it, clown, you know, don't go there. This is not working for your body. This is not working for me, whichever part is talking to you. And then you don't want to kill the messenger. You don't want to ignore the messenger. You don't want to just be foolish in the face of that message. You want to pay attention and you want to interpret it. Now, why did that happen? Maybe. And sometimes you can say, okay, that was a little bit too far. I think I did the right thing, but I went too far. Or I think that was not very good for me. Or that was not suitable for me at this stage or at this juncture. Maybe I'll come back to it after I have more XYZ, you know, strength in the musculature, whatever. You know, so make sense of it. But in our method, in the go clay method, it's definitely not about working through pain. It's definitely not about no pain, no gain. Pain is your friend. Pain is telling you, mm, don't go this way. Try another way. 
you know, we are here in one place, we want to go there, up the mountain, some other place, and there are many, many pathways, how you get there. And barging through pain is usually not the best way at all. And so, so I, that's what I say. Now, why should they make come to us? Well, we're looking good in all the data um, that's available. And by the way, Stanford did a study on that healthoutcome.org uh, website and their paper that they wrote from people in the statistics department, the, the title was, Is Crowdsourcing the New Face of Evidence-Based Medicine? And their short answer was yes. And because the results are very similar to randomized controlled trials, you get a huge amount of data for a fraction of the cost. And there are some new things showing up that nobody knows much about that seem to be effective. Hey. So anyway, so that's, I think, a reason. You know, there's evidence that you might want to raise your hopes again and risk and it's always a risk. No one can guarantee anyone 100% anything, you know. But the stats look pretty good on us. You know, if you want to bet money someplace, we're a pretty good bet. Yeah, and, so, and the crowdsourcing is so interesting because, the, you know, the people that are making those reports really have no vested financial interest or, or another right. interest. Their interest is really just their own experience and did I get better or not? And so there's, yeah. there's kind of... Uh, you know, a simplicity in, in, in going to that kind of data? Well, you know, sometimes, okay, so, you know, anyone's champions or aficionados might go and, but that's why it stabilizes at 80. You don't pay attention to things that just have 20 or 30 uh, results on their votes. That's not enough. You know, you can get 20 friends to go out there and say whatever. We're very fastidious about obviously about being, you know, honest. And we've been criticized for being too fastidious with our own in-house study. That's another piece of data, by the way. We did an in-house study. We used the Roland Morris, Roland Morris Pain Questionnaire, advised by Dan Cherkin, who I mentioned earlier. And we did it online. And we were like super anal about throwing out any data that didn't exactly meet the criteria. Like there's a three-day window. You have to send your questionnaire. And if it came in the fourth day, we threw out that data. And later on, we were told by hardcore researchers, nobody does that. You know, that's way too anal. And, <laughs> and we were also told, you know, we did it all anonymous to be extremely correct. And we were told, no, 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 if you do it anonymous, then you can't call them back and tell them, hey, fill out your questionnaire, so then you get a higher drop-off rate, et cetera, et cetera. So we were too careful. Um, in any case, we're very careful, and we don't want to be on the wrong side of correct ever. There's too much at stake here. This is, like, too good to fool around with. That's great. Yeah, I it, as a as a lawyer, I definitely, you know, really appreciate that perspective and it's incredibly rare and I think that speaks to how much you believe in in this program and yeah. you know what you've devised because you really want it to su succeed on its merits and and you know, it's a testament you want it to be the best version it, it can be and you know, you seem clearly well aware that it just takes, you know, one little scandal or something to kind of, you know, get people to look at something skeptically that, you yeah. know, and unfortunately, in this space, there are some kind of 
you know, actors that overpromise and, you know, not, not saying they're intentionally trying to do something wrong. When we all find something that works for us, our first instinct is to, you know, get a blowhorn and shout it on the mountaintops. Right. Right. It seems like you really recognize that the approach is better. Yeah. And no matter how how hard you try, you're going to be biased. I realize that. That's why we're going through with the randomized control trial, because there is all in the hands of a third party and you, you can be as biased as you want and you don't get to influence it at all. You know, that's, that's the way that there's a good reason for randomized control trial. I, I have great respect for it, but I think that people shouldn't wait around for like, you know, until there is one, you have to make your best guess and educated guess at what, what, which way to go. Definitely. Yeah. And it's just, it's kind of unfortunate that those randomized clinical trials, which are seen as the gold standard are just so expensive to, to get off the ground because, you know, you'd hope that it would be more based on, you know, which therapies look the most promising, not, you know, which ones stand to make someone the most money or something like that, but it seems to be, you know, very financially driven, but um, unfortunately. And in at every step in the way, unfortunately, even you know when when it gets published, it's uh, like it's shocking to me that a lot of my physician friends will say, "Oh yeah, all the journals are corrupt; they're known to be, except for I think the Lancet or New England Journal. There's one that is kind of above, you know, being able to be bought by any uh, the pharma ads, you know. But otherwise, they all depend on pharma ads, and then those companies get to have a say-so in what gets published and so on, which is so sad, mm-hmm. you know. And then at every step, like, you know, then the pharma, it's become less now, but they used to influence, you know, like go and send their reps to the doctor's offices and give all kinds of, you know, yacht arrives yeah. and this and that. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, like influence, unhealthy influence at every step. So Absolutely. Yeah. And we certainly are not taking anyone on yacht rides. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well it's 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 unfortunate because those kind of things can be so effective, even just meals or even, you know, small kind of things. Yeah. You know, I've heard some companies would hire, you know, really attractive people to go around and sell yeah. their products. And it's just it's yeah. unfortunate because, you know, it should yeah. be about, you know, a, a more contextual approach it's, of looking at it's already getting that way more and more, you know, as there's more pressure on the system to perform, to, you know, do better with less, you know, you then that's a healthy pressure. And so here we come into the picture for at least for mus- musculoskeletal health. And then what's interesting is it's showing up to expand to beyond that. So it turns out that psychological health has a postural component. You know, there's study, New Zealand study, 2017, much harder to be depressed with open upper body posture. Lots of studies coming out like that, showing a connection between mental, emotional health and posture. And if you think about it a little, you know, it might seem strange in the beginning, but if you take a good look at your dog or your you know, and you think about how you judge its state of mind, it is by its posture. If that dog has his tail between his legs, mm-hmm. then you know that's an unhappy dog. The equivalent, by the way, in hum- Homo sapiens, our species, is tucking the pelvis, which is something we do and are sadly taught to do. Yeah, tuck the pelvis is a hack for a swayed back. 
It's a very bad hack. What we really need to do is tuck the rib cage, not the pelvis. And that'll give you the same flattening, straightening of the sway without putting your tail in effect between your legs and setting yourself up for head forward, stooped position, turns out some depression, but most obviously misfit between your nuts and bolts all through the spine, your hip joint, your shoulders. It's very sad. We are taught to set ourselves up for self-destruction in our nuts and bolts and uh, poor emotional health that goes apparently with it. Not to mention physiological health. You're tucking your pelvis. You just reduced the volume of your pelvic cavity by, I'm estimating, about a third. So you got a lot of stuff in there. You got 22 feet of intestines. You've got your bladder. If you're a woman, you got your uterus and your ovaries all sitting around in there. And now you tuck your pelvis and you just squished everything. You gave it weird architecture. You gave it less volume. You compromised the blood supply to all of those organs. You squished your nerves that are distributing to those organs. And you just compromise. You just undermined yourself physically, physiologically, and then a few links removed psychologically too. But you just predisposed yourself for chronic constipation, for irritable bowel syndrome, in my experience. And that's there's no data on that. I should underline that. There's a big difference between what I observe and what is actually shown in the literature to correlate. But, you know, from a commonsensical argument, like if you just squish all of your pelvic organs into two-thirds of their natural space, so you lost a third of the volume, there's going to be a consequence. And in my experience, the consequences are very far-reaching. All kinds of organ systems, reproductive system, digestive system, elimination. That's so fascinating. And especially because, you know, I'm just thinking about that right now. I certainly do that all the time, that little tuck and even ability. Yeah. And it's something that it's it's so easy to do without being mindful of. You know, it's just because you've been taught. Otherwise you wouldn't do it. There are two reasons Mm -hmm. why people do it. One is if they've been trained like as babies to tuck their pelvis, then that's what's in their brain. That's what they have learned is sitting. Yeah. And so then of course they replicate that when they sit, whether to work or to watch a movie or whatever. The second reason is because the experts are saying tuck the pelvis. So now we practice that. So those are two very strong forces, the force of cultural habit and the force of medical dictation, you know, like guidelines. Mm -hmm. So no wonder we all tuck our pelvis. And I think we're the worst for it. Definitely. And that, you know, you mentioned a while back to the, the benefits for appearance that your your approach can have. And I, I think you're right. You know, we, when you think of the dog, you know, that's kind of an easy example. But I think all of us, if you, you know, stand people up and one of them has the hunched shoulders and, you know, one of them is, you know, standing, you know, with kind of the proper shoulder placement and, you know, proper J spine at the bottom, they look more confident. They just look you know, more comfortable, they look more inviting to go up and talk to and, and, you know, all those kind of subconscious cues that we're picking up on, but, you know, maybe aren't aware of. So, 
So there's a really interesting book by Emily Hatfield called Emotional Contagion. And that gives you yet another reason to not be beaming out the posture of depression. Because it turns out that people copy each other. For Homo sapiens, our species, it's monkey see, monkey do. We're all copying each other. Whether we know it or not, whether we like it or not, that's what we're doing in some measure. And so we copy whatever posture is around, which is usually pretty poor posture in modern times. And now it turns out that our minds don't really, it sounds flaky, but we don't really, it's not flaky, it's just the way it is. You know, the way we figure out how we feel, one component is we scout around for signs in our body. So a, a well-known piece of research in this direction is if you put a pencil between someone's rows of teeth, and force a grimace, then the brain interprets it as, oh, I'm happy, and it becomes happier. You probably know that piece of research. Mm -hmm. It's common. Well, it turns out to be that way for the body, too. If the brain scouts around and finds a certain posture, then it makes conclusions, and it decides that, oh, I'm depressed, so, or I'm feeling a certain way. So the emotional contagion pathway is you feel a certain way, it registers in your body a, cer a certain way, those around you copy the trappings, copy the posture, and then their minds discover their body to be in those kind of trappings, and, you've and then now that person is infected, if you will, with the, the emotion. And so I think that explains why you, we say, you know, in lay terms, kind of intuitively understanding this phenomenon that, oh, someone, you know, has good vibes or, mm -hmm. you know, every time I'm around that person, I just feel like I'm like I have the wind drained out of me or pulled out of me or whatever. Mm -hmm. So this is a thing. It's a, it's a phenomenon and it's helpful to be aware of it because of all the people pieces or places to write this or to influence this chain of events, being aware of posture is by far the easiest. It is not hard for me to train someone to arrange to roll their shoulders forward, up, back, and totally relax. And now the shoulders remain there as opposed to the more common ways of doing this, which is pull the shoulders back, stay, remains about 10 seconds, and then comes forward. Or even worse, sit up straight. That is one of the most common guidelines in our culture. Sit up straight. People tense up their back. They stick out their chest. After a while, it gets tiring, maybe sore, and then they go and slump again. So most people are going back and forth between being upright and tense, which they think is good posture, and I'm saying, no, it isn't and then being relaxed and slumped, which we all know is bad posture. They're both bad posture, and you don't want to do either. You don't want to be upright and tense. You don't want to be relaxed and slumped. You want to be upright and relaxed. And what it takes is a well-positioned pelvis with your behind behind. It's called a behind for a reason. You know, when that phrase was, was coined, people knew where this part went. And with your happy tail out behind you, yeah? And here is where I wish I was not on a podcast and I could show you an image. And I'm going to invite all of your people to join one of our free online workshops on Zoom. Lots of images to support what I'm claiming here, waving my hands behind uh, a screen, but you can't see me. And um, there I can explain a little bit more visually 
what I'm talking about, but it's pretty obvious once you see it. Yeah, and we'll we'll put a link to the the free workshops in the descriptions, and I, I'm signed up for one uh, coming up soon. Here, I'm I'm really excited to to check it, it out. Cool. <laughs> yeah. We do them a couple of times a week, I think, right now. And yeah, that point you made about emotional contagion is just it's so important. I I definitely want to check that book out, but it, it reminds it's me of an a lot academic of book, and you know, a little heavy going. But and it's written some quite some time ago, so it's missing the latest research, which is really strong. But it's still good. And it was very. She was at the head of the curve, you know, like she early early person to write about this phenomenon. Yeah, yeah, it, it folds in nicely with a lot of the research I've seen about mirror neurons in our brain. Yeah. That we have neurons that are oh. as we watch someone else do something, they're firing as if we were doing that action and. You're so right that, you know, we are, we're very, you know, visually driven and we're very influenced by the people around us. And I've thought a lot about that in the context of having a hypermobility condition that, you know, we have a body with, you know, slightly more, more laxity. So I think we might even be more prone to that kind of boom bust cycle you're talking about, about the straight and that slouch. And so we get into that push pull, but yet we're looking at people that have maybe more connective tissue than we do. And we're modeling ourselves off of that, you know, not maybe our own body and our own structure. And so that's why, you know, it just, it seems amazing to have somebody one-on-one, you know, and using like, you know, real biofeedback techniques like these um, sensors you mentioned to, to look at our specific dynamics and say, you know, what's going to work best for us and then how to communicate that to us in a way that's going to stick with us, you know, not for a week or for a month, but for a lifetime. Yes. Very well put. (laughs) Well, this has been really an incredible discussion and, you know, I've learned so much and I'm sure our listeners will too. I wonder if we could just end with you walking us through this, a simple posture exercise, maybe even the shoulder rollbacks to give people kind of a little bit of an intro to what they can, um, you know, expect if they sign up for the workshop or, or decide sure. to work. Sure. You know what I'm inclined to do? A particularly important one for your audience is the inner corset. And it's a little tiring in the beginning. So you only do it for a few seconds and then let go. And then, but then every time you do it, you're going to get a bit stronger and it'll become a little easier. And so then maybe you can do it for like a one minute at a stretch and then let go. So I'm going to, I'm going to coach all of your people through the inner corset. And there's actually a free 15 page PDF download on our website that details this. Yeah, it's chapter five from my book. So if people, you know, don't want to spend 20 bucks on a book, that's free. So inner corset. So start with what I call a ready position. Like if you were playing tennis, what would that look like? You kind of leaning forward a tiny bit a fair, a moderate amount and your knees are bent and your groin is bent. That's very important. Your knees and your groin are bent about the same amount. You don't just bend your knees and remain vertical. Your upper body is leaning forward. If you look at a serious tennis player, it's zigzag zig. It's not just the upper body is staying straight and just the knees bent. Okay, so if you start with from that kind of ready position and then straighten out the knees and the groin, but don't lock either. Yeah, so you keep a little softness. So there's still a little spring in the in the stance. And now 
there are a few pieces I prefer to build ahead of time. But let me assume that your spine is reasonably aligned, that you're not sticking out your chest and arching your back, because if that's the case, then don't do anything I'm talking about. Go and learn how to not do that first, and that would be rib anchor. But if your back is in a reasonable position, you're not arching and you're not rounding, then now imagining that you're stepping into a cold lake or you're walking into a cold ocean and that cold water is rising up and you're trying to avoid it. You're kind of, you know, pulling up away from that freezing cold water. And now you are using a very particular set of muscles that I'm going to call the inner core set. Yeah, there's no way for me to view what you're doing and course correct and say, okay, a little more this way. No, you've gone into an arch or no, 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 that it looks like you are rounding or whatever. I'm going to hope that you're doing it well and that you're just going, you're making yourself a little sleeker and a little taller within a decent starting shape. And now you got this inner corset. And what that does is it protects all of your joints right? Anytime that your spine would be subject to some strain, maybe because you're carrying something heavy, or maybe because there's impact, you're running to catch that bus, or maybe because you are distorting the shape, you decided you want to do the twist or something like that, or because you're on a tractor and it's like vibrating and it's, you know, bumping and jumping all your joints around, those would be examples of instances where you want to use this inner corset. You want to brace yourself, package yourself in the right beginning shape, little taller, and now you're protected. So it's a twofer. Whatever, you know, damage would have been done to your joints is prevented and you are getting the most important ab exercise you could possibly get, and it is taking zero time to do because you're doing it on the job. And that is the hallmark of the Go Play Method. Life is your gym. It's also your clinic. 95% of your musculoskeletal needs and therapy can be met by simply learning to do your everyday activities better. And I don't mean in some boring way, like, okay, 90 degrees here, parallel there. No, but by looking at your design and how it was meant to be, and all the more important if you have EDS, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, or anything like that, alignment becomes a strength is important, but alignment becomes especially important. And it's important for everybody, and it's way overemphasized. You know, strength tends to be very emphasized, and it is important, more, more than average for EDS. But alignment is critical, and it is totally ignored. I mean, and the few directions there are for alignment, like I've said earlier, counterproductive, not at all helpful. Sit up straight, stand up straight, chin up, chest out, tuck your pelvis, crunches. Crunches are terrible. They crunch your nerves and they crunch your discs. And they've been outlawed by the Canadian Armed Forces. They are outlawed by the U.S. Army if you have a back problem. But in the general population, that's what's everyone doing. And especially for EDS patients, it would be a terrible thing to do. You know, you're like loosening your ligaments further. You're putting all kinds of pressure on your discs, which are already vulnerable. So bad news. So instead, do this inner corset. Make yourself super strong, super protected. 
your natural built-in brace that's there for you anytime you need it. And now you don't have damage and instead you get your exercise needs met. How about that? Sounds fantastic. Yeah, that sounds like exactly what a lot of us EDSers, myself very much included, really need. So uh, thank you so much for walking us through that. And uh, yeah, it's been a fabulous conversation today. I learned so much. I'm sure our listeners will too. And just thank you so much for your time and for all that you do to you know, help improve the lives of you know basically everyone who can come to find this method. So it's really commendable. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. I have to say a particular pleasure. This is one of the best interviews I've had. Well, thank you. And we'll see you next time on the Hypermobility Happy Hour. Bye.